Matthew chapter 6, our text will be focused on verses 7 through 15 this morning. Now, in our study as a church, we've arrived at what is perhaps the very heart and center of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As we observed last week, chapter 6 begins with a stern warning. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now what follows in verses 2 through 18 of chapter 6 are admonitions that address these three chief acts, you might say, of Jewish piety, of, of Jewish religious life. The giving of alms in verses four through, or 2 through 4, prayer in verses 5 all the way through 15, and then fasting in verses 16 through 18. So in Matthew 6, 5 and 6, the text that was covered last week, it was the religious hypocrites, the scribes and the Pharisees, who have been under fire ever since chapter 5, verse 20, when Jesus clearly states, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. While having still more to say on the topic of prayer, Jesus shifts from the self-righteous prayers of Israel's religious rulers and directs now his attention squarely on condemning the empty, long-winded prayers of pagan Gentiles in verses 7 and 8. As a rough outline for us this morning and the text we'll cover, we see in verses 7 through 8 a pitfall to avoid. And in verses 9 through 15, our Lord gives us a pattern to follow. A pitfall to avoid, a pattern to follow. Before we go any further, let's exercise this privilege that we have once more to seek our Lord in prayer. Lord, it is your glory that we seek. Speak, O Lord, speak through the power of your word. Till your church is built and the earth is filled from shore to shore with your glory. This is how we pray, largely, corporately, collectively, far bigger than just our own needs, is what we're aware of this morning. And so, Father, be honored, be glorified, receive praise from the individual thoughts in every one of our minds as we process and think through this passage in a critical manner, but also from the the fresh worship and praise that, that bubbles up within our hearts of gratitude for Christ and gratitude that we have a Father. Father, be honored in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's read together verses 7 and 8 now. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The single Greek word here that underlies the phrase to heap up empty phrases carries this idea of babbling. Just babbling on and on, communicating little to no content at all. 
Gentiles follow this pattern in hopes that by the sheer number of their words, they'll impress their God. Now, it's uncertain when in Jesus' life he may have personally witnessed some of these empty babblings, these empty prayers from Gentiles. But he would have at least been aware of some sort of famous examples from the Old Testament scriptures. Perhaps the most memorable and graphic example of vain, repetitious prayer is found in 1 Kings 18, as Elijah challenges 450 prophets of Baal in order to prove who was the one true God, Yahweh or Baal. And in this narrative, both parties prepare an animal sacrifice before their gods, and whichever God answered by fire, he is God, as the text says. We read of the pagan prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18.26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. And there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And Elijah begins to then mock them for this foolish repetition. The scriptures continue. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at midday, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. On the contrary, Elijah takes a very different approach, if you recall the story. He simply prays that it would be proved that Yahweh alone is God. Fire fell and consumed the sacrifice and the water in the trench surrounding the altar. And this displayed for all of Israel the unrivaled power of God over every imposter deity. What a contrast to the unending, repetitious prayers offered by the prophets of Baal and the simple, faith-filled prayer offered by Elijah. We read of another example of pagan prayer in, in Acts 19. As the city began to realize the commercial hit it was taking uh, as they allowed Paul, the Apostle Paul, to spread this exclusive message, this exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the town. And many of the silversmiths who made their livelihood through creating these, these shrines to the goddess Artemis, they conspired together and they incited the crowd to anger at the potential upending of their trade and of, of temple worship altogether. And in Acts 19, 24 and 34, we read, when they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, they said, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For about two hours, they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Not exactly the most personal prayer. These prayers were not personal. Born from hearts who have a vibrant, selfless love for Artemis? Oh no. They recognized their wallets would be emptied if a rival god moved into town. So it was time to start a pep rally to cheer for the home team. That's what was at stake. What a contrast to what Jesus exhibits before us here in the Sermon on the Mount. In verses 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer. Now, before examining the Lord's Prayer in detail together this morning, 
you might be thinking, well, we certainly do not recite incantations to foreign gods on a regular basis or repeat magical phrases to try to manipulate some deity. So how does all this apply to me? Well, the Jewish audience that Jesus was addressing likely did not do exactly that either. Rather, he was warning them in verse 8, do not be like them. It carried this sense. There always exists the temptation to distort true communion with God with this superficial veneer, plastic veneer of authenticity that loves to be heard in the street corners, loves to be publicly honored by men, but is empty of true communion and is full of manipulative goals toward God. So we should not conclude, though, this morning that lengthiness of prayer is being forbidden since Jesus himself in Luke 6 models a lengthy prayer in which he went into the mountain to continue in prayer all night. Furthermore, Jesus prayed at length in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death, where he also encouraged his disciples to join him. And as we consider verses 7 and 8, as was preached last week and, and was mentioned, there is a strong exhortation here for those of us whose church ministry tends toward a public nature. Elders, deacons, teachers in our assembly. Let that warning ring true for us. We must not become skilled at babbling. Babbling Christianese words especially in prayer. But why? Well, Jesus assures us that our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask Him. This should not cause us to conclude, well, then why pray altogether? What's the point? He knows everything I'm going to say. Rather, we should be astonished that sovereign omniscience has a category for you. For me, sovereign omniscience that runs and governs all things has a category for us personally. This is beyond humbling when you just consider the magnitude of that thought. Every good educator knows that simple instruction, while essential, is incomplete without the now let me show you moments, right? In verses 9 through 13, Jesus welcomes us into his school of prayer, saying, now let me show you. Let me show you what prayer to the Father looks like and how you, as my disciples, ought to commune with God the Father. We now see a pattern to follow. As one scholar writes, the Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Now, of course, we could never know that for sure, but there is certainly no prayer in all of Scripture more scrutinized and mined for its meaning more than what lies before us here this morning. And before we jump in, there are a few general considerations to consider about the Lord's Prayer. We see here. Verses 9 through 13 before us. 
The Lord's Prayer has a certain progression to it that is undeniable and unmistakable. God first, people second. The ideal order of prayer, as one writes. The prayer begins with three God-oriented prayers or, or, or petitions, you might say. And the prayer concludes with three us statements oriented towards man's needs. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The turn is made then towards give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Whether verse 13 is simply one request or amounts to two separate requests, uh, I think it makes a little more sense to group it together as one request. God's glory is the primary goal, followed by requests for our good. So we must remember that Jesus is giving his disciples, though, a model, a model for prayer. He is not saying that these are formulaic words that we should utter every time we speak to God or else he'd undermine what he just said in verses seven through eight. While it is certainly not wrong to pray these exact words, Jesus is teaching his disciples how they should pray. Not providing them with a script that they are supposed to follow word for word. Now, beginning with the very first word and continuing through the entire prayer, it is clear, though, that this prayer is for all of God's children. Looking at it slightly different, the entire prayer is cast in the plural. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. The plural here is used exclusively throughout verses 9 through 13. And although God is personal to every one of us, we share him as his children. As the Westminster Catechism states, the reading we just read this morning, we should pray with and for others. There's a simple little poem that's been written years ago that illustrates that our Lord's Prayer was never intended by, to be understood by rugged, lone ranger sort of Christians. And it reads like this. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say I. You cannot say the Lord's Prayer and even once say my. Nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for another. For when you ask for daily bread, you must include your brother. For others are included in each and every plea from the beginning to the end of it. It never once says me. Now, Jesus just encouraged the hypocrites to give in to secret and to pray in secret so their father who sees in secret may reward them. So are we wrong then to pray publicly as we've done this morning multiple times? Are we wrong to pray on Wednesday nights or at our recent prayer project and so on and so forth as we routinely do in our calendar year? Well, how is it that just a few verses later, he's advocating public prayer in a corporate context? Well, Scripture is clear as it repeatedly gives us examples and exhortations such as 1 Timothy 2. 
I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The Ephesian church was told to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, making supplications for all the saints. The Philippian church was to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So from the earliest days when the church met in the temple and then homes and eventually catacombs to pray amidst persecution, God's people have always placed a premium on praying together. May this always be one of our most cherished favorite things that we do as a body of Christ. Now let's consider each phrase of this prayer in succession. Verse 5 begins the Lord's Prayer with the preface, Our Father in Heaven. Several years ago, Newsweek magazine ran an article entitled, Hallowed Be Thy Name, in which the newspaper's religion editor, Kenneth Woodward, reflected upon the woeful state of fatherhood in our day and age. He writes the following, These are tough times to be a father. The media is full of stories about abusive fathers, fatherless children, and deadbeat dads. This is an age which fathers get little respect. And you don't have to look farther than the biggest father figure of them all, God. God the Father is out, unless coupled with God the Mother. Few theologians these days seem to want a God who takes charge, assumes responsibility, fights for his children, makes demands, risks rebuffs, punishes, as well as forgives. In a word, a father. So while remnants of fatherhood might be few and far between in our culture, the Scriptures make clear that God is Father to His covenant children who have been rescued by His mercy. And yet, to call God Father is not a customary address throughout the Old Testament. In fact, reference to God's fatherhood is only mentioned 14 times in the entire Old Testament, and always just by way of an analogy. There are no recorded prayers or narratives that directly address God by this title or description. So as best we know, Jesus was the first Jewish rabbi to ever address God directly as Father. Consequently, this got him in a lot of hot water. John 5.18 reads, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. This clearly struck a dissonant chord. In his commentary, Kent Hughes correctly notes, Jesus transferred the fatherhood of God from a theological doctrine in the Old Testament into an intense practical experience. And he taught his disciples to pray with that same intimacy. So verse 9 continues, hallowed be your name. To modern hearers, this word is not only non-existent in everyday speech, but even the concept of holiness has all but left our cultural dictionary. Another layer of confusion is raised by the reformer Martin Luther when he says, now, what exactly are we praying for when we ask that God's name become holy? Isn't it already holy? 
Well, Luther's conclusion was that because each Christian bears God's name, this petition is therefore a call for God's name to be made holy in our lives, in all who bear his name. In essence, to petition God that his name be hallowed is to pray that God's people might treat his name as holy. They might regard his name as holy in all their thoughts and in all their conduct. Verse 10 continues with the second and the third petition. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we to discern from the second God-oriented petition? Your kingdom come. As one man points out, God's kingdom is breaking in under Christ's ministry, but it is not consummated till the end of the age. So to pray your kingdom come is therefore simultaneously to ask that God's saving royal rule be extended now and before as people bow in submission to him and already taste these these eschatological blessings of salvation. And it is to cry for the consummation of the kingdom. So in other words, the fullness of God's kingdom will not completely be known until Jesus returns. But the dawning of this kingdom is felt with each soul that trustingly bows the knee to Christ's lordship and saving faith and repentance of sin. The third petition here, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To tell someone, your will be done. So to say that, your will be done. We may not say it, you know, that's not a colloquial expression we would say. But to say that and to mean it is usually said for something that we don't care much about. Uh, imagine for a moment, college student comes home after spending, you know, his year away, he's home for summer, and he's met at the front door by his seven-year-old kid brother. And the first thing his little brother says is, what should I name my pet turtle? I mean, the college student, unless he is just immensely wonderful, soft-hearted, just, you know, spiritually matured and compassionate and kind, he would probably say something to the effect of, you know what, buddy? Uh, your will be done. Have at it. Uh, I'm sure you're going to come up with something great. But I just don't care that much what you do. The only way we would probably say that are categories in life, you know, your will be done. I, I just don't, don't care that much. But for topics and for issues that pertain to our entire lives, things that our whole futures depend upon, well, we care a lot. And it's really, really, really hard to say that phrase. We really like to have our hands on the steering wheel. And the only way we'll ever say your will be done is if we have exceptional trust in an expert that we're entrusting ourselves to. So, how much do you trust your Heavenly Father? As one man put it, a four-year-old cannot understand many of his father's prohibitions, but he trusts him. To truly mean it when we pray, your will be done, means we wholeheartedly, unreservedly trust the Father's sovereign, 
holy purposes for us. Even if hardship and suffering should arise, and even if we can't make sense of the mess around us. Furthermore, it's then to commit ourselves to the prayerful advancement of those kingdom purposes on earth so that His will might be perfectly accomplished here as it is in heaven. So with verse 11 comes a a transition point that we saw earlier from God's glory, put three petitions for God's glory, to now three petitions for our good. We read, give us this day our daily bread. Now, this may come as a shocker to some of you, so I'll just warn you in advance, but this is not what Jesus had in mind. Believe it or not, I know our daily bread, it's on many of our (laughs) stands probably or bookshelves here and there. This is not what Jesus was praying for. It is, however, a very, very simple petition. This is a petition that God would take care of us. That he would provide calories for the next day so that we can live. Profound, right? That is why so many early church scholars struggled with how trivial this seemed. How do we go from making these grand sweeping requests that God's name be hallowed, His kingdom come, His will be done, and by the way, I'd like to eat. I'd like to have my next meal today, Lord. Just a a jolt in, in focus. In some contexts, though, many first century believers held jobs where wages would be awarded day after day. As James 5 recounts, a scenario when landowners were withholding wages from their workers. And in effect, this was denying them life. So imagine them praying this prayer. That's a whole different look. Take to it, doesn't it? Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9 read, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And profane the name of the Lord. It's a simple prayer that, Lord, take care of me today. The simplicity of this request must not be lost on us. We need God for our next meal. Without Him, we don't eat. Now, we may not connect the dots that carefully and parse it down as simply as that, but that is the truth. As you pray before lunch this afternoon, realize that your Savior thought praying for food should make the cut on being included in one of the most significant model prayers of all time. Sanctify your daily routine of eating with reverent gratitude for God. Put the pieces together and give thanks to whom thanks is due. In verse 12 we read, And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. In Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, this phrase reads, And forgive us our sins, rather than Matthew's, Forgive us our debts. But it seems clear enough that the author has in mind a metaphorical use of the word debt 
since the Aramaic word is regularly used to convey sin or transgression. But more significant than having our earthly bodies sustained by daily bread is having our sin debts forgiven by a holy God. Tightly connected to one's renewed relationship with God is one's renewed relationship with one another. This is seen in the phrase, as we forgive our debtors. So the focus of this now fifth petition holds the believer's feet to the fire. Do we truly understand forgiveness in the gospel? Have we embraced this? It will surely be revealed in how you forgive other people. What's your disposition toward having your sins forgiven by God? When you think about that, we sing about this, we talk about it, but how do you process that? Forgiveness of some of your sins? Yesterday's sins, that'd be, that alone would be gracious. Your whole life, your forgiveness. How do you think about that? Are you increasing in joy as a result of your increased skillfulness at confessing your sins before the Lord? Of this discipline of forgiveness? Do you believe God's forgiveness was something that you needed just Maybe when you got saved, but is no longer necessary. Sort of starter fluid kind of doctrine that gets things going, but you don't need it once the fire's up and up, up and running. Luther writes, if we find confession and repentance intolerably traumatic and demeaning, and before he came to embrace the gospel, he was neurotic over confessing every sin he had. So he knows this. He says, if we can find confession and repentance intolerably traumatic and demeaning, it means the heart is not right with God and cannot draw confidence from his gospel. There's been a misfire. If confession is this difficult for us, let us repent of the pride in our hearts. Verse 13 reads, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Long-standing debate has existed for centuries on whether this verse contains one request or two. But it doesn't change the significance of the words. To pray, lead us not into temptation, is not to presume that God naturally enjoys leading his people into tempting situations just for the fun of it. No, James teaches us that while God allows his children to experience testing for their steadfastness and for their endurance and godliness, We must pray, lest our hearts begin to gaze longingly at the prospect of what it might look like to give in to that temptation or that temptation or that temptation over there. We must pray so that we do not yield to temptation, sinful allurements. We know this. We're kidding ourselves if we don't think this is a part of our moment-by-moment daily lives. And yet, how infrequent is this prayer? Lord, lead me not into temptation. 
Lead me not into circumstances where you know I have given my heart time and time and time again. Protect me and help me when I do face it to rely upon your grace. Jesus tells his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here a connection between prayer and temptation. There's an unmistakable connection between how we think about our communion with God and fighting indwelling sin. Deliverance from evil is not just this eschatological eternal reality for the people of God. Knowing the joy that comes from feeling the impulse to sin, but choosing instead to pour out one's soul in prayer, beseeching the Lord for His rescue, this is the rugged road to exceptional Christian joy in the gospel. It's hard. And we press into it. For most of our translations, there's nothing that follows what we've just concluded with. But for some of you, some of you who may have a King James Version of the Bible, you'll find a doxology included in the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I kind of wish it was in there. (laughs) While this beautiful closing doxology was never likely a part of the original manuscripts, we know from history that there was a regular practice of closing all prayers with a doxology of very similar content. So don't be afraid that you can't trust the Bible's authority. In keeping with Jewish patterns of the day, Jesus likely uttered these words or words very similar to them to the majority of his prayers. However, in this case, in this case, it would seem that it was not originally included in Matthew's record of Jesus prayer. And as an addendum of sorts uh, to conclude the prayer, we read verses 14 and 15 as a repeated reminder of what he has touched on back in verse 12. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So once more, the absolute essential nature of forgiveness is underscored in these verses. Not in the sense that we must, by good works, earn God's forgiveness no that our forgiveness simply demonstrates transformation that has been wrought by god's mercy towards us if the lord's prayer is a model prayer for every one of his disciples a model not necessarily the what of prayer but the how of prayer not the sum and the substance of every word not the script that we must follow necessarily this would mean that there's great, work, great room for personalized application of this prayer. So how might we place these truths within our hearts this morning? Well, first of all, this prayer, like the Lord's Supper, is unique, serves as a unique blessing for the family of God in particular. And while early Christians insisted upon this only being prayed by their fellow Christians, somewhat defensive of that, This prayer does function as almost a familial conversation 
in a living room, you might say. From the first two words of this prayer, our Father, a line in the sand has been created. Either you have a relationship with this Father or you do not. Of course, how can one address God with this highly relational title if the Father does not recognize them as members of His own family? Perhaps you do not claim to be a Christian this morning. Friend, accept this as an extension of God's kindness to you this morning. The life-giving Scriptures coming to you as an invitation There are so many examples in Scripture of men and women who have shook their fists at God and they have said, my kingdom come, my will be done. And they had no concept of the great debt to which they owed the God of heaven and earth. And their destruction was always the same and it was eternally great. And yet this is the great admission that all God's children must humbly make. Their debt of sin is exorbitant. It's unpayable. It is hopelessly large. And the wages and the payment for this sin has always been and will always be eternal death. But God, He offers full pardon, not partial not installments of the payment. He offers full pardon and forgiveness through the ransom of His own Son as your substitute for sin. In the letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul memorably writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Repent of this debt of sin and run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. There is no other way to know true communion with God. For those of us as God's family here who say our Father and we know that he knows us as his children, Evaluate your prayer life. Evaluate your prayer life. Do you find yourself praying long-winded, repetitive, frothy, empty sort of phrases when you pray? Phrases that you might not even sure be sure what they mean all the time? Remember, your Father knows what you need before you even start into that phrase. Let us then with confidence, through Jesus, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Our impressive vocabularies, our Christian buzzwords that we, if we hang around the right people long enough, we can kind of get skilled at. This is not what invites us into the personal presence of God. It is not the key that unlocks the door. It does not prove to the gatekeeper that we know we're supposed to be here. And he welcomes us in. The only welcome we receive is the personal escort of the only mediator we could ever have, Jesus Christ.
Secondly, use prayer to expose the idols of your heart. Use prayer to expose the idols in your heart. Praying for God's name to be kept holy in your life. His kingdom purposes to come about. His will to be done. You can't do this genuinely without rearranging and inviting God to rearrange your whole life. You're asking Him to to wreck you in a good way. So that He might do somewhat of a resurrection in your heart. Rearranging all the pieces. This is why Martin Luther maintained the practice of writing personalized prayers two times a day that followed this exact outline of the Lord's Prayer. Because it provides for us such an expansive but yet simple paradigm for prayer. Perhaps ask yourself some penetrating questions. In what ways am I profaning the holy name by which I've been called? Have I lost sight of God's kingdom purposes only to fix my eyes upon my own little kingdom values of self-promotion? In what ways has my will become the primary direction setter of my life? After high school, I'm going to do this. And after college, I'm going to get this kind of job. And I'm going to make this amount of money. I'm going to have this kind of family. We're going to do this. And, and, And the script is just being written almost subconsciously. In what ways has our will become the primary direction setter? And we have failed to ask that our wills might be realigned by God's will. Thirdly, use God's church to grow in prayer. Use God's church to grow in prayer. Let us remember that the entire prayer we consider this morning is cast in the plural. This is not a prayer just for you specifically, per se, but for all of the family of God. This is a corporate prayer to be prayed within the community of the saints. One of our seven core distinctives as a church here at Eden is pervasive prayer. Even if you are a real prayer warrior in the privacy of your own home, heed the words of Christ as he calls his people together to assemble for this very Goal of calling upon his name. Consider the soul stretching value of a time like Wednesday night. The residual effect that might have of five, ten, twenty years of putting certain habits and patterns into your life. Think about that as we gather regularly on Wednesdays or perhaps on Occasional gatherings such as the prayer project that we just had or the all night prayer meeting in January's. And I've yet to hear anyone leave any of these meetings and say, well, that was sure was a waste of time. Because <laughs> I think deep down whether we had, you know, the most exciting time in the short lived sort of sense. But we know we did worthwhile work. We gave ourselves to a worthy cause. Prayer is hard work. But in the end, it is a delight that rightly orients us to our Father. And as God's redeemed people, let us not forget that within this prayer, our good has been designed. We call upon our Father, aligning our hearts with His, seeking His kingdom purposes, 
pursuing his will, asking for daily provision, accepting and then extending forgiveness and fleeing temptation, all for the glory of his great name. This is our Savior's model prayer. May it be ours as well. Let's pray. Lord, it is for the glory of your great name that we have gathered here this morning, that we lift up our hearts to you, simply saying, Our Father, we are so grateful for this sort of intimacy that has been won for us through the blood of Christ. We can draw near to you. We don't deserve that, Father. Yet you have conquered death, you have conquered our sin, and we simply say thank you. Father, we pray that in our lives, your name would be kept holy. We represent you every moment of every day. We pray that we would accurately reflect you. We pray that your kingdom would come. We know we live in a day in which things seem to spiral out of control not only within our own lives, but but in our culture. We pray your will would be done. Father, give us all that we need for today. We don't know what tomorrow will bring forth, but we know we need your aid today. So would you bring it, Lord? We need you. Father, we pray that you would be glorified by the prayers of your people. Deepen us, Lord. There's hardly a... A more convicting thought than, than talking about prayer. We know this is a, a life-changing resource that we just don't utilize. Forgive us for this. Help us to be forgiving people and extend your great name to the end of the earth through humble obedience and love for you. We pray all these things through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.